Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. I'm here with a really brilliant uh, young scholar, uh, Dr. Claudia Sofia Garriga Lopez. Uh, she's at um, Chico, uh, California State University. Um, and she's doing really, I, I, I mean, I don't know, know how else to describe it, but pathbreaking, incredible, and inspiring work um, on the theme of trans feminism and particularly. Transfeminism in the Americas. Um, and I was, as with all our guests, uh, very excited to have her on because I think she represents a very important and, again, interesting perspective for us to think about emancipation and think about how we think about politics and ourselves. So, uh, Claudia, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Bloom, for having me on the show. And greetings from Chico, which are the ancestral lands of the Machupta tribal people. Um, it's an honor for me to be able to discuss my work with you today. And I guess I just wanted to start off by mentioning that um, this past week in Puerto Rico, there was a brutal murder of a woman by the name of Neulisa Alexa, who was um, harassed um, at a bathroom in uh, McDonald's in Puerto Rico and subsequently uh, assassinated uh, for being trans. And um, the murder was sadly uh, kind of filmed and put up on social media. So it's just been a very painful time for the queer and trans community in Puerto Rico. And I would like to dedicate my interview with you today to her honor and to say that um, this case just really underscores the urgency of trans feminism as a movement to combat the gender and sexual violence that prevails in our societies. No, I, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's something important for us to think about throughout this interview, but also think about throughout our lives and how important that is. So thank you so much uh, for doing this interview and doing this interview in her honor. Um, so this is obviously, um, you know, quite important, the work you do and this movement of trans feminism and this way of thinking um, is, is, is incredibly important. So what in many ways was your inspiration for, you know, looking at this topic and for kind of dedicating yourself to it? Well, I have a long um, history of queer activism within people of color communities, um, dating back to my time at Rutgers University in 1999. Um, and I was very committed to putting my research in the service of strengthening social movements. Uh, during my uh, master's degree, I wrote a thesis about kind of feminist collusion in imperial warfare in relationship to the US war uh, against Afghanistan. 
And I found myself um, deeply saddened and enraged by the information that I found there and, and thought very carefully about my next project in terms of wanting to um, not only be disheartened with feminism and disillusioned with its imperial collusions, but um, really find spaces of feminism that felt transformative, that felt um, that they were really making a positive change in society. And so I felt that transfeminism really represented that. Uh, I, I visited Ecuador very much uh, kind of by chance. Uh, there was a preliminary grant available uh, for visits to Latin America, or, or grant for preliminary research for uh, visits to Latin America, but they did not include Puerto Rico. And so I was kind of forced to think outside of my home space and um, think about other projects. And so when I arrived in, in Ecuador, I um, found that there was this group called Proyecto Transgénero that was led by Elizabeth Vasquez and Ana Almeida. And that group was the kind of umbrella organization for Casa Trans, which was a community cultural center and residential space for trans activists, uh, as well as the Legal Patrol, which was the group that sought to kind of combat police violence against trans sex workers on the street and uh, various other legal projects that I thought were really cutting edge and uh, really inspiring. And I felt strongly that it's important for us to um, look at the work that's being done in Latin America and the Caribbean and be in kind of a, a hemispheric conversation across people of color, queer and trans activists queer and trans activists in, in Central and South America and the Caribbean. Wow, absolutely. I mean, so in a sense, I mean, taking this background, maybe you, you've written quite a bit about it, but I'm not sure if everyone would know, what do we mean by trans feminism? And I know that's a, that's a kind of huge question because there's multiple definitions, but what is trans feminism? How would you describe it? And what are its various histories? Um, transfeminism is a form of intersectional feminism that's founded in the understanding that sexism and transphobia are interlocking and mutually reinforcing systems of oppression. Uh, it was kind of emerged in Spain in the 1980s in relationship to kind of feminist conferences that talked about the need to include transgender women within feminist theory, politics, and activism. And it kind of developed from there into a kind of broader subculture of anti-capitalist or anti-austerity measures, uh, squatting rights, kind of copy left organizations, uh, migrant rights, and various other kinds of uh, anti-institutional politics that make uh, Spanish transfeminism a, a very kind of radical and edgy uh, political movement. Um, in the United States, transfeminism was first um, coined by Emily Courvant and Emiko Yama in the context of their conversations about um, intersex, trans, disability, and survival, uh, sur like uh, rape, rape survivor um, experiences and intersections. And in 2001, Emiko Yama developed 
what she called the Transfeminist Manifesto, which she published on her website, transfeminist.org. Uh, and that kind of led to the circulation of more knowledge about transfeminism. And in that manifesto, she describes transfeminism as a feminism that is by and for trans women who understand that their liberation is intrinsically linked to the liberation of all other peoples. Um, my research is based in Ecuador and Quito, as I mentioned, and transfeminism first took shape there in 2002 with the emergence of the Patrulla Legal or Legal Patrol in English, uh, led by Elizabeth Vasquez, who was a law student at the time and on her way home from her night classes would routinely pass by a group of trans sex workers. Uh, one fateful night, she decided to kind of cross the street and, and talk to them. And they engaged in a mutual kind of consciousness raising and political education session where Elizabeth Vasquez listened to the various concerns and issues that were happening, um, especially in relationship to police violence and harassment, and also learned from them the codes of the street and, and the ways that things work and established a real kind of bond and connection that has kind of continued to this day in various different projects. Um, I think as I first started to um, try to give that historic background of transfeminism, I quickly came up against the realization that um, when trying to describe things in a chronological order, it somehow uh, recentered Europe and the United States in my conversations, as I kind of just have now. Um, and so I want to say that transfeminism has taken shape in a global context uh, as a transnational movement from its very emergence. Um, and at the same time, transfeminism is kind of like a naturally occurring phenomenon, right? Transfeminism is a name that we give to various different practices, like for example, the leadership of trans people within feminist and LGBT movements, or when transgender people find in feminism useful ideological and practical tools for their own empowerment and liberation, or when we see collaborations happening between transgender and non-transgender feminist activists, there we find transfeminism. And so in many ways, uh, my project has sought to, um, you know, retroactively look back at various different instances of what we might call transfeminism. In the context of Chile, for example, um, there was a well-known travesti artist called Hija de Perra, and she uh, was the kind of master of ceremony for seven consecutive years of the leading femme fest kind of feminist festival that was happening. Um, and so in that sense, maybe they didn't officially say we are actively trans feminists, right? But they were engendering trans feminism. Um, and I want to suggest that if we kind of look outside of a chronological mode, uh, we can look back to various instances, like, for example, the decriminalization of homosexuality in Ecuador in 1997 and the leadership of trans women within that movement long before um, 
kind of there was an official name for trans feminism. In regards to its particular characteristics, I would say that trans feminism shares many qualities with what's been called third wave feminism. Um, in particular, there's a kind of approach towards the decriminalization and empowerment of sex workers and of sex work. In many cases, sex worker, um, transgender women experience and travestis experience a very high degree of labor discrimination and overall social exclusion that in many cases pigeonhole them into practices of sex work. And so we understand that it's important to decriminalize sex work and empower sex workers as a component of kind of trans feminism more broadly. Similarly, um, there's an overall lack of acknowledgement and discussion of migration in uh, relation to these debates on sex work. So many feminists have kind of gone back and forth about whether sex work can ever be empowering or if it helps to build autonomy or if it's always a violence against women, if it always reinforces sexism. And along those lines, tried to decipher if the best way to approach the problems within sex work by criminalizing it or by legalizing it. But many times uh, at, left out of the discussion is how migration policy is a source for systemic disenfranchisement of sex workers, such that if sex work is decriminalized, that would still not make it legal for them to work. Um, and the, the kind of idea that if you are really interested, for example, in um, reducing the prevalence of sex work, then also we look to migration policy as something that excludes many people from formal work and therefore um, in, enables and encourages sex work and other forms of illicit trade in order to be able to kind of get by. Um, another kind of important component of transfeminism is the logic of gender self-determination and more broadly of bodily self-determination. This began in um, 2009 with the kind of global movement to end the pathologization of trans people. And it basically uh, states that the medical and psychiatric industries should not be in charge of deciding who is trans and who therefore should have access to gender affirming treatments. There could be, for example, a set of best practices or recommendations established by these institutions, but these institutions are not um, in charge of determining our gender identities. Um, so thinking about kind of depathologizing trans identities, taking them out of the diagnostic categories of psychiatry, but also kind of removing psychiatry and psychology and, and medicine as kind of the authorities on who is or who isn't trans. Along those same lines, um, there developed a kind of broader anti-institutional politics that was very deeply critical of how doctors at times intervene on the bodies of infants who are born intersex. So under the same logic of gender and bodily self-determination, there was a big campaign developed to um, kind of end 
those inter those um, surgical interventions on intersex infants. Uh, and this was around the same time of nine. So this anti-institutional politics kind of spreads out more broadly to an understanding of how these institutions regulate our gendered and sexual identities in ways that, that they shouldn't. Um, so that kind of sex work, migration policy, um, gender and sexual uh, bodily self-determination. And I think this last point is one of the resonances that transfeminism has with various other movements. So for example, when you think of disability rights, um, people with disabilities also face um, the experience of feeling disempowered in their relationships to doctors who seem to have the ultimate say on what the best course of treatment is or how a person should live out their lives and really insisting that while of course there is a role for doctors in determining best courses of action, it should really be the determination of people themselves uh, what their, their medical treatment and care might look like. And of course, this concept of bodily self-determination opens up to a whole broad range of other issues, including sexual assault and, and various other issues like that. So I try to find those points of connection because transfeminism has increasingly developed as not only a effort to include transgender people in feminist politics, but a form of uh, politics that centers the experiences of those who are most marginalized in society, a kind of constant movement of margins to centers that establishes not only trans people as its point of focus, but actually almost kind of moves in an anti-identitarian direction that means that transfeminism um, takes on a more, much more broad range of issues than just transgender politics in a very formal sense. Mm. That, that was an incredible, uh, concise, but also very comprehensive um, description and uh, historical background of transfeminism. Um, if I could, before going on to the specific case of Ecuador and then Puerto Rico, um, if I could ask uh, just a couple kind of follow-up questions on that. Sure. Um, which is, you know, it was really interesting that this point about, you know, the authorities of doctors and the authority and, and this kind of gender self-determination. And I wanted to know your view about, in a sense, almost every, like, it seems to be a repeating pattern of, you know, this type of medicalized and pathological discourse to control whether homosexuality and now transgender, uh, previous it is to control women's bodies, and that's still happening. And every time it's, you know, we see the problems with this, and yet it continues to repeat all the time. Like, why do you think that is? Why do you think that this kind of broader notion of self-determination and deep pathologization, like we haven't learned our lessons from the 20th century and they're still happening in the 21st century. You know, I think it has to do with our sense of power and authority. Uh, I think mm -hmm. medicine and um, science have a kind of grip on the concept of truth and authority. And um, 
for as much as we have done some cultural work to explain, you know, how how science and medicine is always deeply imbricated in the larger gender, racial, and sexual politics of the time. Um, it's still happening in in that way because it requires an enormous amount of mental and social deconstruction to understand how gender is imposed upon us before birth and how race is something that we inherit as a set of hierarchies in society that are compounded over centuries and make it incredibly difficult to kind of move away from and deconstruct the, the scientific um, tenets that try to naturalize these social hierarchies and, and marginalizations. Um, but you know, it's it's a difficult question um, to to answer. I would just say that uh, while there have been many important contributions and advancements in the fields of medicine and science for transgender women, et cetera, the institutions as a whole have remained very much on the side of power. And so I think mm -hmm. it's not so much the the medicine or or you know the treatments that is at at, at um, that de deserve more scrutiny, but rather the kind of correlations between people in structural positions of power and the continuation of uh, structural oppression. Hmm. No, and, and I think then that kind of goes. You mentioned the the issue of migration, and I think that touches on also you know when we think about deconstructing how we consider power, also the locations of power. Um, and, and transfeminism, as you kind of mentioned with migration, but really has become a transnational movement and a source of global solidarity. Um, and I'm wondering, again, before we talk about the specific case of Ecuador and Puerto Rico, if you could kind of talk about that, because they really have been able to form kind of transnational networks. Um, and it is a really, I think, uh, vibrant solidarity that's emerging. Sure. Uh, well, I would say transgender politics have really um, kind of had an enormous jump in visibility in the kind of digital era, and that it's important to recognize how the internet has served to break isolation from people who have a hard time finding communities in their local context. Um, and also just how much these digital medias and the internet have transformed our lives and the ways that we organize. So, uh, you know, from the start, people saw, sought out these uh, resources online and, and were able to find them and they became kind of very uh, quickly distributed, I would say. And by, by that, I mean the various manifestos, the Manifesto for Transfeminist Insurrection coming out of Spain, the Manifesto... Uh, from Emiko Yama, but uh, the work of Kaylee Hadas over at um, in Brazil. Um, yeah, sorry, Haley Kaz in Brazil on Tumblr and various other social media platforms has made it so that um, transfeminism is viral, right? Transfeminism is uh, instant and and super connected in in a global and trans transnational way. At the same time, I want to propose that one of the other main characteristics of transfeminism is that it is a, a sort of micro politics, right? So in response to its kind of anti-institutional approach, 
there is a big emphasis on kind of a collectivized mediation of conflicts, of the access to digital media and other platforms that are generally unavailable due to limited economics positions for people of color, migrants, um, and other marginalized folks. So micropolitics means an interest in interpersonal relationships and in kind of cultural and aesthetic interventions over and above kind of legal-based reforms. And of course, many different trans feminists have engaged in campaigns for legal reform, and, and one of them is in Ecuador. Uh, but at the same time, it's not the first impetus of the work. It's something that maybe comes up afterwards, uh, but the first impetus of the work is to connect on an interpersonal level and find ways of kind of collectively supporting one another through networks of mutual support um, that try to circumvent the state structures and, and try to find ways of, of kind of sustaining ourselves outside of them. And, and I think that that brings us right then to uh, Ecuador. Um, and you mentioned uh, legal patrol, or uh, I'm using the English uh, version of this kind of movement. Maybe you could explore that in a, in a bit more detail and about how that kind of represented this kind of radical um, and multifaceted ethos of trans feminism. Sure. Uh, well, the legal patrol was made up of four people, and they would essentially walk the streets at night. Uh, there's been about maybe 15 different iterations of this group. So different members over different year periods, right? This started back in 2002. But essentially they would make journal notes of different conversations they had, of their observations of the scene. Uh, when they first began kind of intervening during what was very common uh, police harassment and arbitrary arrests, they would at times be arrested as well um, because they were kind of just there not really having any standing. And so that led them to be very creative about how to approach these problems of police harassment and abuse. Uh, they went to the chiefs of police with their complaints. They did, um, kind of different press conferences to denounce different acts of violence. But most of all, what they did was establish a long-term dialogue with the police who walk the streets. So the police who walk the streets for the most part are really the lowest ranking police officers. And they are in many cases able to exercise considerable discretion in terms of whether they make an arrest, uh, give a warning, give a ticket, and therefore kind of talking to them and engaging them in a conversation about how in Ecuador sex work is not illegal. And therefore um, it's not about saying that women are conducting sex work on the street, but rather they are kind of establishing a verbal contract to conduct sex work somewhere else. Um, and so kind of teaching them to have a different perspective on the lives and experiences of trans women, 
Um, they also, for example, did a lot of consciousness raising with the neighbors of um, the areas where trans sex workers worked and also of the space of Casa Trans where they established this kind of community center and residence for trans people so that the neighbors would also be kind of more understanding and not urged to uh, call the police in cases where they feel there's a disruption happening. So they engaged all these different kind of components of the community and did things like uh, get themselves matching jackets so that they look more authoritative and don't get arrested when they're intervening or establish alternative identification cards for trans sex workers that listed their names that they go by, the genders that they are, and also other information that was relevant to their encounters with the police. Um, and this kind of alternative ID was a way of, um, again, speaking to the codes of the street while kind of taking the tools of formal recognition and of kind of legal channels as a way of giving themselves more power and recognition so that they're not out in the streets with no ID at all. And this was actually quite appealing um, to many of the trans sex workers and to other kind of members of the street. Um, so while it was not necessarily implemented in a large scale, there was conversations with kind of street vendors and uh, members of the Latin Kings gang to also establish kind of street IDs for them. Um, so those are some of the examples of how in very micro political ways, um, they were able to effectively reduce the levels of police harassment and arbitrary arrests happening in Ecuador. And ultimately, this kind of uh, regular conversation with the police led to um, a series of workshops where over 8,000 Quito police were trained on how to call people by the name that they give you instead of the name that's necessarily listed on the ID, to respect people's gender pronouns, to be aware of kind of not manhandling people and not roughing up people to understand that some people might be wearing binders under their shirt and to establish a new set of guidelines within the um, police handbook that basically kind of tell police how to interact with trans people in a respectful manner. So this is an example of how something that is kind of micro-political over years, right, can develop into a larger scale intervention that you can think of as being reformist or being institutional, but that is really born out of something that is much more building cultural understanding across different groups of society um, and understanding their, their points of connection, right? Because the police are also part of the street scene. Um, and so they also can be kind of reasoned with in, in kind of street codes in, in a way. And I think, you know, one of the aspects that was very interesting for me reading about this in your work um, was, you know, you could use the word reformist, but actually I think there was something quite radical because through these various interventions and this very sophisticated understanding of the materialities and experiences of power as they were there, that it 
really did seem that they were able to use these different strategies, these different interventions, some of which were direct action, some of which were, you know, training to actually shift, um, you know, the subjection of these from subjects to be policed to subjects to be protected to even the beginnings of a shared community between people. Yes. Um, and I thought that was really, so I would be interested if you could explore that a little bit, because I, I, I think that does show the radicality of what was at stake, which was, you know, something that was about actually shifting the various ways in which they were treated and understood as subjects. Yes, I I completely agree. Um, So I would say that from the beginning, the legal patrol established uh, trans women at the kind of ideological leadership of the project um, because it was their experiences that were kind of the framework for thinking about what interventions would be most effective. Um, And in terms of the work of actual empowerment, uh, Elizabeth Vasquez did numerous trainings where not only did she work with trans sex workers, but also was very deliberate in reaching out to trans men who are often invisibilized in our discussions about transgender politics and um, making them part of the legal patrol, uh, establishing more personal and political connections between trans women and trans men and of kind of both training trans women as paralegal um, activists and training other LGBT activists in specific paralegal issues Um, as a way of building that community and and building that sense of connection across both the trans men and trans women and LGBT, like broader experience. Um, And so I think that's that's definitely been a very radical move. And and I think um, what I have observed is that the Patrulla Legal, the Proyecto Transgenero, Casa Trans, all these different groups understand that the law is something to be dealt with. The law is not something that we exist outside of completely, but rather the law is something that we strategically maneuver and try to make work against itself in various different ways. Um, So that it's a very creative approach to uh, legal politics. And, And while I I said there is a reform in there because there is, right? It's a reformist project to train the police on how to relate to trans people. It nevertheless had a very profound impact and its profound impact was based, I think, less in the formal training aspect and more in the night to night building of rapport with different uh, police officers that would then lead them to have that kind of authority to speak to a larger audience. Um, so I do think that it is a very radical politics in that sense. And, and I think that it has a similarly complex relationship to academia. I think um, transfeminism is born in a very specific activist context of entra- uh, liberation for trans people and of finding deep transphobia within the gay rights movement and of kind of finding more connection within feminism. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's increasingly becoming a topic of academia. It's increasingly kind of formalizing itself. And I think that there is a a certain tension there 
um, that is again about, you know, we can't completely disengage from academia, but there are some tendencies of um, academics appropriating concepts developed by activists, kind of uh, an extractive relationship to activism, but that they never, nevertheless understand that there's a strategic value to being in conversation and engagement with academia as a way of expanding the, the reach of transfeminism. I mean, one, a, a really important aspect, and maybe this is just my um, reading or own, you know, critical reflection of it. So if it's not relevant, please tell me. But before getting to this kind of the, the next campaign, which is the My ID, My Gender campaign, is that this balance between uh, really this kind of creativity on the one hand, I really felt reading your work and also you know, reading transfeminism is that there's also that specter and reality of violence that really grounds us. And, and it's a violence that, you know, is often against the body. It's a violence against the self. And also, you know, as we spoke about at the very beginning uh, of this, uh, an actual, you know, these are often people whose lives are, are in direct danger. And for me, I thought one of the things that transfeminism was that it did, you know, ask you to think about the possibilities, but it never took itself away, whether theoretically or from the materialities and actualities of the violence that these individuals and communities face. That's right. I think uh, in many ways, transfeminism attempts to have a broad theoretical and epistemological understanding but one that is always grounded in the material realities of queer and trans people um, and, to, and, and gender non-conforming people. And to understand that um, the way that our theoretical approach becomes intersectional is precisely by looking at those lived experiences, those embodied experiences uh, that make it so urgent to, to do this work in a, in a very grounded way. Um, so absolutely, the specter of violence is never far from the kind of things that motivate transfeminism to come into being. So the other campaign that you've written about, um, which if you're willing, um, you know, if you could indulge us to take some time, because I know that it will require going into a bit of contemporary um, and maybe not so contemporary Ecuadorian and even Latin American history is the My ID, My Gender campaign. But I, I think it's worth doing because it shows the kind of simultaneous creativity, but also the tensions and also just the granularity and context specific ways in which trans feminism navigates a whole range of kind of traditional power structures and standings in ways that aren't always its to choose but also ways that allows it to be quite mobile and adaptable. Sure. Um, so I, I would be really interested if you could kind of, you know, help our listeners kind of understand what this campaign was and some of the background be on, be, behind it. Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, the My Gender on My ID campaign started in the summer of 2012 with a proposal to the National Assembly that everyone all people be allowed to choose their gender designation on their formal state IDs and that sex be removed as a category 
of administration on the official state ID. So replacing biological sex with gender and having everyone have the option of determining their gender on their IDs. Um, this uh, decision to kind of highlight gender but not necessarily eliminate um, sex as a category altogether, as an administrative category altogether, but simply hide it from the ID was based in an effort to kind of not complicate too much the already existing laws around sex. So for example, there are quotas uh, for uh, inclusion within electoral politics um, about women, and there are other things that are measured around kind of questions of sex that uh, rape and divorce and um, all these other things that make it so that they wouldn't necessarily want to do away with that category altogether, but instead make it private, right? Um, and so they circulated photos of IDs with uh, photos of genitalias to emphasize how putting sex on somebody's ID, especially for trans was an invasion of their privacy. Um, and so there was a lot that was being kind of negotiated and navigated at that time. But I would say that the most important thing is that in 2006, with the election of Rafael Correa to the presidency, there was the opening up of a constitutional assembly period that began in 2007 and ended in 2008 um, that was not only a great moment for the remaking of a new constitution uh, that turned out to have one of the most progressive stances in, in Latin America, but for kind of bringing to the public view the great diversity of society within Ecuador and to making a call to unity of the various movements that had led to the destitution of uh, President Gutierrez in 2004 with his entire cabinet, as well as the election of uh, Rafael Correa to the presidency. So during that time, they were able to make really positive uh, changes um, within the constitution. For example, within the anti-discrimination legislation, there is the inclusion of gender, sex, and sexuality as separate ca protected categories of anti-discrimination. Uh, there was the recognition of diverse family homes. And importantly, um, something developed by uh, Elizabeth Vasquez was um, freedom, the, the kind of right to aesthetic freedom um, that makes it so that our cultural identities are something that we express through our bodily aesthetics. And therefore all of us have the freedom to represent those aesthetics uh, and those multiple identities in public ways. Um, so many, many things were incorporated into that constitution that were very powerful for the transgender community. Uh, following that uh, constitution, we saw a kind of first generation of transgender people entering the university system and the kind of next step that evolved after that 2008 constitution was an effort to create inclusive IDs for transgender people. Uh, so we had this proposal for, to remove biological sex and replace it with gender, have everyone choose their gender identity. And I would say they were working within a context of controversy 
where uh, Rafael Correa had publicly announced on numerous occasions that he would rather resign than preside over a country where either abortion or same-sex marriage was legal. So one of the things that this group had to figure out how to relate to was the accusation that this proposal was really a kind of backdoor strategy for accessing gay marriage. So this is another reason why the proposal didn't suggest to eliminate the category of sex altogether, but rather to uh, replace on the ID with gender so that there kind of could continue to be this ban on same-sex marriage while also kind of pushing forward um, transgender rights. And uh, just to note that uh, this past year, uh, same-sex marriage was made legal in Ecuador under the presidency of Moreno, Lenin Moreno. Uh, so that's kind of a point that has passed by now, but at the time was incredibly contentious and something that they had to really fight against till the very end, they were convincing or trying to make the case that this had nothing to do with gay marriage um, and that they were instead pushing forward something that was going to give trans people access to the main pillars of the kind of socialist revolution, access to education, housing, employment, healthcare, uh, understanding that not having an adequate ID is a form of administrative violence that limits people's access to these basic needs that were kind of at the center of the call for this 21st century uh, socialism in Latin America. And it was one of the things that I, I found really interesting um, was this kind of uh, tension between, you know, how far can you go and these really strong discussions about that. So in a sense, there was a real seeming dynamism about absolutely, as you said, what is the actual political context? How far can we push things? And in doing this, what kind of ways would this open up new opportunities? Um, but I think one of the kind of also interesting aspects is that you mentioned kind of micropolitics, and this was at the na uh, national level, but you've kind of begun turning to some of the more, uh, and I don't know if this is the best phrase, more macro or structural questions of, you know, what kinds of economies and what kinds of kind of ways in which we can push back against broader colonial legacies allow for transfeminism. So you've been looking at specifically questions of extractivist economies, um, indigenous communities, decolonization, and the relation to transfeminism. So I'd be interested if, if you could kind of talk about some of that. Um, I don't know if it's more recent work, because I think that's been underpinning a lot of what you've been doing, but that kind of research that's maybe at a bit of a broader level. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, so one of the things that I've been thinking about more recently is uh, in relationship to my effort to make a kind of chronological order of transfeminism and how it leads me to kind of have a, a Eurocentric and North American centric narrative. And so I think, well, what are the local conditions that created the possibilities for transfeminism to emerge in Ecuador? And I think of a long history of feminist activism. I think of the kind of legal subversive strategies of different human rights lawyers responding again to questions of state violence. 
And I think of the especially strong indigenous rights movements that was uh, at its height in this moment of kind of trans feminist emergence. And that continues to be an incredibly powerful force in Ecuadorian politics today. Many of the kind of legal subversion strategies that Elizabeth Vasquez developed as part of the transgender project were in some way based in the work already established by indigenous activists for cultural recognition of identity um, and for finding ways to mediate our problems without state intervention. Uh, so almost kind of borrowing the concepts of sovereignty and autonomy and, and cultural identity developed by indigenous groups and, and using them to um, push forward trans liberation and empowerment. And so in that sense, uh, trans feminism in Ecuador has a great debt to the indigenous movement. Uh, it's also the case that at the time that this gender ID law was being considered, uh, was a period of great political repression against indigenous groups and also environmentalist groups. The social, you know, social revolution or the 21st century socialism of Ecuador, like many other countries in Latin America, was based not in a redistribution of wealth from the rich to the rest of the population, but instead the kind of heightening of extractivist economies, specifically around oil. So through development grants from China and through increased oil extraction uh, and the kind of revenue that that developed, there was the kind of funding that emerged for all the different social programs that this socialist um, 21st century socialism was hoping to implement. What that means is that kind of people's cultural, social, and economic rights end where the, where the extraction begins, right? So um, many of the groups that initially supported Correa later came to feel like they had been really betrayed by him in terms of his very authoritarian approach to kind of removing people from their lands, to arresting water rights activists and other things like that. This is especially following uh, January of 2015, when the price of oil uh, dropped considerably and therefore impacted the revenues of the country. Um, and so that's kind of been something that's been on my mind and that I've been thinking through a lot of, in a sense, all of the rights that were gained by transgender activists were very hard won battles. At the same time, it's important to understand how transgender and LGBT rights circulate on a global scale and uh, what kinds of work different countries do to see are advanced in regards to social rights for LGBT people. So I think that while it was not at all easy to kind of convince Correa to have a series of unprecedented meetings between the president and LGBT activists. It's also the case that Correa saw this as a good opportunity to try and clean up his reputation as somebody who's deeply authoritative, as somebody who was homophobic and sexist given his, his kind of state statements about abortion and same-sex marriage. 
and also as a way of seeming to be advanced in social rights at a time of actually increased political repression. So it's a delicate balance that I'm trying to strike between, between recognizing just how much work was put into a very long process of achieving a very limited goal of um, having an, a gender, an ID that re represents people's gender um, in the context of him losing popularity, of there being an economic downturn in the country, and of trying to find a way to positively represent himself on a global scale. So I think that uh, as I'm moving forward in my research, I want to think more deeply about the relationship between transfeminism and a decolonial politics. I think that within transfeminist circles, there is a clear understanding of how gender was a colonial and is a colonial imposition, right? How Christian gender and sexual norms of marriage and morality were imposed as, as just as much as racial hierarchies and land dispossession and, and were just as big of a part of that colonial project. Um, and understanding how decolonizing our, pol our general lives, right? From moving away from state structures to moving away from the dominance of North American and European countries is really a, a transfeminist principle. And at the same time, I think that there needs to be more articulation around that. Um, and I'm, I'm very gra grateful to see uh, the work that's coming out of Puerto Rico um, specifically uh, in relationship to food sovereignty, for example. This is a topic that my sister, Dr. Adriana Garriga Lopez, talks about in her own research, but how there's kind of a growing food sovereignty movement in Puerto Rico in a time of heightened colonial power of the United States over Puerto Rico in a number of different ways that I can discuss with you, um, that is actually being led by kind of queer and trans women of color and um, their kind of participation in these food sovereignty movements that are so often kind of um, represented as, as fighting too big of a battle or um, kind of unable to really surpass the structural oppression that they're facing. Um, but I think that they're, they're actually showing how that is a, a narrative that we don't need to buy into and that they are both kind of constructing a world for the future, but also just living it right now in the present. And, and I would also wanna highlight um, the kind of presence of uh, trans people specifically in the movement to um, remove the former governor of Puerto Rico, Ricky Rosselló, um, even though that was kind of this broad sector movement where pretty much everybody except the elderly and infirm were out in the streets uh, protesting against this governor, it's also the case that there was a very distinct and clear presence of trans activists that was constant throughout these uh, months of protests or these weeks of protests that ultimately led to his resignation. Um, so I think there's a you know, when we think of Puerto Rico, um, it's especially clear uh, that we're we're in a colonial relationship as well. 
And so I think when we talk about decolonial politics, we, we have to recognize that it has many strands, just like transfeminism does, that there is a kind of indigenous decolonial politics, and then there is the kind of colonial politics around national sovereignty um, that Puerto Rico and other island nations are undergoing. So uh, while I don't have that part of my research as clearly defined as other components, I actually see this as my project of really um, thinking through the connections between transfeminism and decolonial politics. And, and I think that it's also interesting for me looking at um, from my own research about how there's a need to decolonize, you know, where we think a lot of this activism or the cutting edge or this activism is happening. And I, and I think the Puerto Rico example is really important because there is a tendency sometimes, I think, um, to kind of think, oh, well, you know, trans rights or trans feminism in, you know, the continental 48 of the US or in Europe, that's where, you know, that that's where you, you really have the most interesting cutting edge things or they're, they're farthest along and every place else is kind of catching up. But I think this is an example actually, and I think your work's an example of the need for, you know, really decolonizing how we see this and actually understanding the different points of global struggle and also really being able to decenter, um, you know, the US and Europe as the quote unquote kind of vanguard of trans rights is trans uh, feminism and activism. Absolutely, yeah. I think that Ecuador is a really important example of very cutting edge activism. I'm currently writing my book manuscript about over 20 years of their different strategies for legal subversion and aesthetics and performance and all of these different components that I, I think are really valuable for us to engage with as equals, right? To kind of remove that imperial gaze that assumes that things are more advanced in the United States and that we have nothing to learn from people in South America, the Central America and the Caribbean and other places outside of Europe and the United States. Um, and to really resist the kind of, um, I think that as trans becomes a more normalized category, it also becomes a more normalizing category so that there's increasingly a sense of um, rigidness around kind of trans requiring a full medical transition or trans requiring a really stable, constant, non-fluid concept of one's gender, um, but of also of kind of trying to universalize trans as an experience that I think also has a bit of a, a colonial impulse to it. So there's this idea that trans is something that you can be of any race, of any class, of any sexuality. Um, and while I think that it is important to give that flexibility to um, the category trans, I think it's also the case that there's increasingly an interest by scholars like Cole Risky, for example, to look at the category travesti in South America and say, here's a category that is very specifically tied to economies of sex work, uh, to black, Brazilian and other kind of travesti people. Um, and that is 
connected to this kind of street life, and perhaps most importantly, that refuses to kind of assert, yes, I am a woman, and instead kind of takes up an intermediary gender position that says, I'm, I'm neither a man nor a woman, nor do I want to be either. Um, and, and really understanding that as our local expression, which is, of course, not all encompassing of transgender people in Latin America. But that's exactly the point, right, for us to have terms that are context specific and that do not try to universalize the representations of trans experience that we see coming out of North America and Europe. And, and I think, you know, I have just kind of two more questions. Um, and, I, and I think that really nicely brings to this kind of, I think, broader question about how transfeminism exists, in a, and I think for very good reasons, as a concrete politics that is often involved in the kind of question of recognition of gender as a protected social category. Um, while at the same time, and you've written about this in your work um, and others have as well, as a broader epistemological effort, epistemological break, that works to challenge and transform really strong and entrenched hegemonic knowledges that are based on patriarchy, classism, Eurocentrism, um, and heteronormativity. And so, how do you see, and I know this is a very broad question, but I mean, just briefly, if you can, that kind of relationship between, on the one hand, the everyday, well, I guess the Pismadras is everyday as well, but that concrete politics and that demand that, you know, you actually do create transfeminism and trans as something normal to be protected with the ways in which we're engaged in epistemological battle with the knowledges that really reinforce the power behind this and are part of this kind of normalizing process that we want to more broadly challenge so that we can have something more emancipative and liberating. Yeah, I think um, to try and answer your question that we have a multiple issue politics because we cannot live single issue lives. And um, the experiences of, of trans people are always their racialized experiences, their classed experiences. And I think that for a long time now, we have seen that the most privileged among us most often stand in as representatives of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender movement. And that that has really limited our ability to address issues intersectionally, uh, but that precisely the kind of push to um, the push of transfeminism, right, is to kind of stay grounded in our multiple issue lives, but to understand that those multiple issue lives have these, you know, in a very sense the the old feminist axiom of the personal is political um, that, that kind of opens us up in all these different directions and that ensures that when we engage in politics, it's not in the service of the most privileged among us, but instead in the service of those who constitute the margins of our, our society under the logic that when you serve and work and kind of um, are in collaboration with those who are most marginalized within society, that is ultimately working towards all of our liberation, right? Because we are 
we are less aware as cisgender people of how gender binaries are imposed upon us on a day-to-day -day basis and limit our sense of sexual and gender expression. But look at what the work of the trans feminists in Ecuador do with the My Gender on My ID campaign to say, actually, this is something you can choose too, right? And, and how that mm -hmm. concept of choosing our gender identity helps us to deconstruct the ways in which our gender has been imposed and expected of us and engage in a much more liberatory relationship to our gender and, and to our bodies. So uh, I think similarly of the work of Julia Serrano in terms of uh, reclaiming femininity as something that not only within broader society, but also within feminist circles has been derided as something that is superficial, manipulative, um, not serious, or in other ways less valuable than masculine expression and understand how we can kind of break out of that um, to embrace femininity and um, kind of not see it as, as a less serious form of, of gender expression. Um, so that's some of what I, what I think in terms of how transfeminism is not only uh, my action of solidarity with trans women, it's my own liberation. It's my own process of reclaiming my femininity, of understanding how gender has been imposed upon me and of deconstructing that towards my own liberation as well. Um, I think here many times of the quote, I think it's by Winnie Mandela of, if you've come here to help, please go away. But if you've come because our liberation is intrinsically tied to one another, then let us work together. Um, and so I, I think that's been the, the, the kind of push of transfeminism within my own experience. And I think as a non-transgender scholar, it's actually really important for us all who are not trans to think about what is our investment in transfeminism and whether we are positioning ourselves as helpful saviors or whether we really understand our liberation to be intrinsically linked and to kind of see transfeminism as not something that is us looking from the outside into other people's experiences, but rather that we are directly implicated in the politics of transfeminism. Take that very seriously. Well, I mean, I think that's such an important point. I think reinforcing this idea that this is about all of our liberation. And I think that brings us to the kind of last question that I ask all of the guests on this podcast, which is, um, and, you, and you've touched on this a bit, so, but, you know, really take this in any direction you want. I mean, but in many ways, whether contemporary or the future, you know, we talk about another world as possible. And in many ways, what would another world be like? that actually took on these transfeminist principles as an organizing principle? I imagine that a transfeminist world would look like a really big variety and diverse and ever-shifting and new emerging set of gender and sexual desires and identities and manifestations. I think that a kind of conservative feminist or uh, trans-exclusionary feminist approach would sometimes would attempt to argue that um, gender as a concept weakens feminism's direct actions against men's oppression to women. 
um, and try and envision a world without gender as their liberation. And, and I kind of think in the opposite direction where we just have new gender identities emerging all the time and, and there being a real openness to that being a kind of creative play. You know, I think of something very similar happening with language um, where we can, can not be conform, confined to notions of grammar or correctness and instead embrace Spanglish and other multilingual forms and, and think of those as our main forms of communication instead of some lesser than um, dialect or something. Um, so I, I envision a world of um, gender and sexual play and of linguistic and aesthetic and cultural freedom. Um, I think that in many ways, a trans-feminist world is already happening and it is a trans-feminist battle against the kind of violence that trans and women and queer and lesbian and gay people face in our societies with the tools of feminism. So I, I see that there's a, a utopian vision that in many ways is already being lived out in these micro-political networks. Hmm. I think that that's a really uh, beautiful, um, and I can't even begin to describe how significant way in which to think about, you know, not only the possibilities of revolution, but the ways in which we need to fight for what's happening and its revolutionary potentials right now. Um, so thank you so My much pleasure. for being, you know, you're speaking, um, it occurs I'd... to me that an anti-institutional decolonial trans feminist politics for sure believes in a world of no borders. Um, and of deconstructing and, and dis, dismantling the policies that create immigrant people as a permanent underclass in our societies. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it has to be transnational and it has to be global and it has to be global and it has to be, as you said, emancipating all the different borders and violence that prevent us from truly embracing our diversity and possibilities. Um, I wanted to give a little bit of space at the very end. Uh, we don't do this usually in the episode though, to once again, talk about who this um, episode is being dedicated to today. Thank you. I appreciate that um, invitation. Neolisa Alexa was a 29 year old trans woman who lived in the area of San Juan and um, she was assassinated uh, this past week. Uh, it was filmed and posted on social media. Her assassin has been arrested or her, the suspect of her murder has been arrested and is found to be a 17 year old boy. Um, so I think the, the more information that comes out about this tragic event, the more heartbreaking it is to grapple with the realities of, of transphobic violence and I want to emphasize that the way that this conflict started was because uh, she was accused of kind of peeking on women inside of a women's bathroom, um, which is really a, a transphobic kind of attack of suggesting that trans women are really men who are predatory and seeking out sexual contact in women's bathrooms. 
And it's just to show how deeply uh, damaging and how, how what a clear impact it has to propagate those stereotypes and how the people who set out to murder her represented themselves as kind of protecting womanhood or womanhood um, as, as their reason for attacking this person. So I think it really speaks to our need to shift the narrative of those bathrooms and understand that using a bathroom is a right and a need that everybody has and that kind of propagating these stereotypes of trans women as sexual predators is false and also incredibly dangerous and violent for trans women and trans people in general. Um, so I appreciate you giving me the time to mention her name again, Neulisa Alexa, because it's uh, it's been a very painful uh, death in, in Puerto Rico within the queer and trans community. And, and we're all very kind of shook up by it and really feeling the need to come together to address these problems of social violence. And I think we can all share our sympathies um, and condolences both to her family, but also to the community, the queer community in Puerto Rico. And really, I think, as you've mentioned, this is a type of violence that it touches on all of us and calls on all of us to think about the discourses and assumptions that we have and that we allow to be propagated and that are used to drive such violence. So thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter Bloom. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now.